I will invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Going to spend all of our time there this morning. Good to see you all here on this wonderful, beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. My wife is in Searcy, Arkansas with our daughter. Haley's birthday is coming up this weekend, and um, she didn't want to be gone this weekend as uh, Valentine's Day is coming up and the banquet is coming up, and she wanted to be here with her loved one. I'll just put it that way. So uh, she took this weekend to go and be with Haley, so she's worshiping there in Searcy this morning. The Apostle Peter said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This morning we're going to look at a parable in um, Luke chapter 14, um, an individual wrote me an email, I think a week before last, sent it to me just as an encouragement, said that he saw something in the parable that he'd never seen before, although he'd read the parable many times. And so I read through the email, and, and I too was, was sort of surprised uh, at what I had seen there. I was thinking about preaching something else today, but my mind just kept going back and back and back to this, this email conversation uh, that we had had. And so even though I tried my best to, to focus on other things, I, I kept coming back to that. So I thought, well, I'm just going to have to preach that. I started reading a book the day after I decided to preach that, that was given to me by um, a dear, sweet lady here in the congregation. It's called Hearing God. I think she thinks that I need to hear God more or better, and, and I do. So I began reading this, and on the first day I read it, it hit me like a brick. The very thing that I was reading and had been, my attention had been focused in on Luke chapter 14 was some of the very things I began to read in this book on hearing God. I, I, I couldn't have orchestrated that any better if I'd wanted to. I just love it how uh, it seems that the Holy Spirit begins to work and to move in my heart and in my mind and, and starts bringing some things uh, together. I, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I hope you have. I trust uh, that you have. So right off the bat, before we even begin... Um, I want to tell you what the parable is about. In my class on the parables on Wednesday night, you remember I told you that sometimes we can make more out of a parable than is really there. We want every little thing to stand for something, uh, and we can sort of miss the big picture. Jesus said in John 14, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms, or 
The old King James says, our many mansions. We've, a whole host of songs have been written about our mansion in heaven. But literally, John, uh, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, many rooms, many places to abide. And the gist, I think, of what Jesus is saying is, God has a big, big house. And there's room enough for everyone. There's an old song uh, Jeff Moore used to sing um, about God. It says, there's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. There's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. Some of you shaking your head. You remember that song. We're going to see that in our text this morning. God has a big house. God has a big table, a feast has been prepared, and God wants as many people to enjoy this feast as is possible. As we just read from the Apostle Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but God wants as many, whosoever will, may come. God wants them to come. Now, when Jesus tells this parable, uh, obviously there's a context here, and we need to understand what that context is, why he would even tell this parable in the first place. So we're going to go back to the beginning here in Luke chapter 14. And I just want to work, work my way with you uh, through, this, through this passage this morning. Let's open our hearts, let's open our minds, let's have ears to hear what God is saying to us. Luke 14, the word of the Lord says, One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Haven't we noticed that from some of our texts here recently? It seems that the Pharisees, uh, they're like the church police, you know, if you will. They, they're, they're just always watching. They're just always on the prowl, looking for Jesus to do something that they could catch. Jesus is now eating in the home, and the scripture says, of a prominent Pharisee. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. A dropsy is, is an old term. I don't think we would even use that much anymore. Uh, from what I understand, um, it, it's, it's sort of an accumulation of fluid in the body, uh, early in the morning, your eyes could be very puffy, swelling. Uh, probably later in the day, it would uh, maybe manifest itself more in the, the legs and the feet, the ankles. Uh, today, I think we would use the, the term uh, edema, and, and it would have to do with congestive heart failure. Am I right? All right, the doctor says I'm right. But this is an old term um, that, that is used. It comes from the Greek word hydro, and they get the word dropsy. There's a man suffering from this. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? <laughs> I just love Jesus, um, the way that he deals with, with people. Knowing me the way I know me, I would, I would probably ask this question because I was going to try to Stick it to the Pharisees, the, the, the experts in the law. Uh, knowing me as I know me, I'd want to kind of get in a sucker punch, you know, to try to show them, you know, what's for. 
I can assure you that's not Jesus's motivation. Jesus is, is here shining a light, if you will, on their hearts. And when you shine a light on someone's heart, I think one of two things can, can kind of come to play. Jesus shines a light on your heart, and if, if your heart is good, to borrow from another parable, if your heart is good soil, then you're going to want to you're going to want to make changes. You're going to want to do things that would please Jesus. But if maybe your heart is not that good soil and, and, and Jesus shines a light on your heart, then it's going to become a blinding light. It's, you know, somebody's got their high beams on when you're driving. You, you, you want to look away. It's hard to look at that because he's shining a light on what's really inside of us. And then that comes to the surface. So Jesus asks the question. Here's a man who's standing in front of them. He's, he's at the home of a prominent, that's a, that's a key word, a prominent Pharisee. And the man with dropsy is before him. And Jesus just simply asks him the question, should we heal the guy or not? What day is it? It's the Sabbath. So they're thinking in their minds, oh, if I say yes, we should heal him, you should heal him, then that might constitute work. And we're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, right? But if we say don't heal him, <laughs> that makes us look like mean people, right? Here's a guy that could, could use some help. There are other times when Jesus healed on the Sabbath and he posed the question to him like this, is it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Well, uh, what are you going to say? What are you going to say there, you see? So they're, they're, they're sort of trapped. So what do they say? They remain silent. They didn't say anything. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. And then he asked them this. He said, if one of you has a son, maybe your manuscript says if one of you has a donkey or an ox, you have a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? I mean, that sort of seems to answer itself, doesn't it? If your son fell into a well or your donkey, or your ox fell into a well, wouldn't you immediately pull him out? Well, no, it's, it's the Sabbath. I guess if I went out and pulled my son out, that would constitute labor and work, so I, you can't do that on the Sabbath. I guess he's just going to have to stay there till tomorrow. Hopefully he won't drown. Of course you're going to pull him out, right? So Jesus asks them that question. What do they do? What do they say? Nothing. Nothing. They had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Now, he's at the home of a what? A prominent Pharisee. When you hear the word prominent, what comes to your mind? Well-to-do? Gated community? something maybe along that lines, climb the, climb the chain high on the food chain. 
Jesus noticed how people are, are picking their seats. Verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished, in, distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is noticing the jockeying for position, if you will, at the house of the prominent Pharisee. People are trying to position themselves to, to take the seat of honor. So this is maybe lost on us. You know, we, a lot of times we'll have a round table. We'll all sit uh, at a table like that. Our, our dining room table is sort of a big oval. So everybody that kind of sits around is, you know, um, kind of going to be equal, you know. Um, but in this day and time when they, when they placed people, when they were reclining at table, there were very prominent seats closest to the host. That would be the most prominent seat. Farthest away would be the least important place. And Jesus noticed this jockeying for position, if you will. And he says, don't take that, don't take the seat of honor. Take the, take the lowest seat. Humble yourself, and then you might just get moved up to a better place, right? He goes on to say this, verse 12, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus is here at the home of a prominent Pharisee. He's seeing how all the people are jockeying for position. He tells his host, when you give a, a luncheon, which you have just done, a banquet, don't invite your rich friends. What had the prominent Pharisee done, do you think? He had invited his rich friends. Did Jesus look around and see blind people and lame people and crippled people? Do you head like this? No. He saw other prominent people or people who thought they were prominent or who wanted to be prominent. And he says, when you, when you give a banquet, don't, don't do that. He's looking around basically to the host, and it's an indictment upon what the host has already done. He's invited the rich. He's invited those that could pay him back who could invite him in return. And so Jesus said, when you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, you're going to be blessed because you're going to be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So now we come to our parable this morning. In verse 15, 
When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. <laughs> it's just, it's as if the guy didn't hear anything else Jesus had just said, right? Or maybe he heard it and just sort of glossed over it. It wasn't really what he wanted to deal with. Because Jesus had a way. I, I don't think, like me, he, he was doing it on purpose to try to get a, a, a jab in. That would be my flesh. I don't think that was Jesus' motivation. But nevertheless, it had that same effect. But this guy just glosses over all of that. What about the blind, the lame, the poor, the crippled? We don't see any of those here. But all he heard was, blessed is the man who's going to feast at the banquet of God in the resurrection. Oh, that's going to be a sweet time, Jesus. And so now Jesus replied in verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. All things are ready. Come to the feast. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. What you have to understand here is that in this day and time, a man would send out a banquet, uh, send out an invitation for a banquet, and those who were invited would RSVP and say, yes, I can come, or no, I can't come. So all these people that have been invited, they've already said yes. Yes, we're going to come. We'll accept your invitation. So now the man prepares the banquet, and he sends a servant out to all of those who have already been invited, who've already accepted, to tell them all things are ready. Come, let's feast. Come for the table now is spread. But one by one, they began to give an excuse. Oh, I, I just bought a field, and I've got to go look at it. Excuse. How many of you buy a field without going and looking at it first, right? I mean, possibly somebody might buy a field sight unseen. If you are a rich investor and you got more money than you know what to do, you might have one of your people buy a field on speculation. But chances are, if you're like me, no, you're going to go and look at the field first, right? The other guy says, I just bought some, some oxen, five yoke of oxen. That to me sounds like a pretty big purchase, doesn't it, you? Five yoke of oxen? I guess that's 10, isn't it? If you yoke oxen together, that'd be a yoke. So if you bought, that, that's 10, that's, that's a lot of money, I would think. Now, how many of you have ever bought a, a car, sight unseen? 
Has anybody ever bought a car that you've never seen? Anybody? No. When we go buy a car, we look, we go, we test drive, and then we do that one all-important thing. We kick the tires. What is that about? Does anybody know what, what that's about? Has that, has that ever changed your mind about buying a car when you kick the tire? How many of you ever kicked a tire before? Anybody? Come on. Let me see it. Come on. Keevan, thank you for... Okay, a few of you have kicked the tire. We, we kick the tire, and I guess if, if it just immediately goes flat, we go, no, I'm not buying that. That tire's no good. No, I mean, we kick the tire because it makes us feel better. I don't know what we're doing. But I've always been told you're supposed to, you know, kick the tire, make sure that thing's solid. So we kick the tire, and then we buy the car. You don't buy the car sight unseen or without kicking the tire. So all of these people who've been invited start making excuses. Oh, I've got to go check out some land I just bought. I've got to go check out how good my oxen look. One guy says, I just got married. Now look, in this day and age, when the Jews got married, it was not... They didn't go get married in a fever, okay, you know? They didn't get married in a fever. This was a long process. You had a, a, a long engagement. The man would go and he would build on to his father's house. That's why what Jesus said in John 14 is so special. He says, if I go, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back. Because you, my people, you are the church. You are my bride. I'm the bridegroom. So the bridegroom, during this betrothal, this engagement, he would go to his father's house and he would begin adding on, building, building, building until the time was ready. Then he would come back and get his bride. So this was a lengthy, lengthy process. They didn't get married in a fever in first century Jerusalem. So the guy says, oh, I just got married. You know, I can't come. Excuses. Excuses. Look at verse 21. The servant came back and reported all of this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Isn't that just what Jesus had said earlier to the prominent Pharisee, to the host? When you, when you give a banquet, don't invite your rich buddies, the guys that can invite you back over, because you'll be repaid. But when you throw a banquet, invite the blind, the, the, the crippled, the lame, the poor people. Isn't that what he had just said to his host? Yes. So the owner of the house gets so angry that these people are not coming. And he orders his servant to go out and just bring the blind people in, the poor, the lame, the crippled. I, I, I want people to eat at my feast. Now, who do you think the owner of the house represents? Somebody say it. Represents God, right? Who are those who have been invited 
that are now making excuses. The Jews, they had Moses. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had everything. They had been God's chosen people for centuries. They were the body of people through whom the Messiah was going to be ushered into the planet to bring salvation, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The Jews, those people, the prominent Pharisee, all those that are reclining at the table, that's who Jesus is talking to. That's who he's talking about. They had been invited. They'd always been invited. They were God's people, a chosen people. Beginning with Abraham, the son of promise, through whom that line, the Messiah, would come into the earth to take away our sins. But they're not coming to the feast. They're making excuses. The owner of the house becomes angry. I'll tell you what, you go bring in the poor, the cripple, the blind. I want them to eat at my feast. Now look at here. This, this, is our, this is our gem. This is our hidden treasure, if you will, to borrow from another parable. This is, this is what we've come here this morning to see. Verse 21, verse 22. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. The master says, go and invite, invite all these people. Invite the blind people, the poor, the crippled, the lame. And the servant comes back and he says, sir, I've already done that. I've already invited all of them, but there's still more room. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a second. Had the owner of the house told the servant to do that? Did he tell him to go invite the cripple, the poor, the blind, the lame? He did. But when did the servant do that? He did it before the master told him. Am I right? Are you with me? Are you awake this morning? He comes back and his master tells him what to do and he says, I've already done that. So does the master look at him and say, you wicked servant, how dare you do something that I didn't tell you to do? Is that what he said? No. No, look what he says. Then the master told his servant, well, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The master seems to be so happy that the guy has already done what he's told him to do, but yet, there's still more room. So he says, cast your net even further. Go out even farther. Tell them to come in. Why? Because the master has a big house and he has a big table 
and there's lots of food, and he wants as many people to come and to feast with him as possible. God is not willing, willing that any should perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance, to know him, to know his son. Let me just share with you a, a line or two from the email that I was sent. In the story of the banquet, the master sends his servant out to gather those who'd already been invited, but none of them came. And then the master tells him to go bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant responds that he'd already done that, but the banquet isn't, banquet isn't full. That's the part I'd already missed. The servant's original instructions were to go to the invitees. Nothing in those instructions about the poor, the crippled, blind, and lame. Listen here. But apparently the servant knew his master's heart so well that when the invitees didn't come, he took it on himself to invite those others who had not been invited. He didn't even feel the need to ask. He just knew that's what his master would want him to do. And then he goes on to say this, I want to be like that servant. I want to know Jesus' heart so well that I don't have to hesitate or await special instructions when I can do something that I know he wants done. So now let me share with you what I read in my book the day after I read that. On hearing God, on being in a relationship so close to the Father, it says, it is in our union with God, a person both loving and beloved. He does not delight in having to always explain what his will is. He enjoys it when we understand and act upon his will. Here we come to understand what God wants us to understand through immersion with him in his work. We understand what he is doing so well that we often know exactly what he is thinking and intending to do. It seems that the servant in our story knew the master's heart so well, so intimately, so closely, that before the master even told him, he knew that that's what the master wanted done. Is that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? To be in such a close relationship with God, our Father, because we've spent much time in his word, because we've spent much time in prayer, because we have listened so intently to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit that there are times in our lives when we just act because we know it's what God would want us to do without having 
to be told. How many of you would love for your children to do something without having to be told? Would you like that? Can you remember back, some of you, when your kids were young, would you have liked for them to have made their bed or taken out the trash or washed the dishes and you come home and it's, and it's all done and you're like, what has happened to my child? Somebody has come and invaded the body of my child because this is not normal. Wouldn't that have been, wouldn't that have been sweet to walk into your child's room and see the bed made? to open the pantry and the trash is taken out. I used, to, I, I used to wait. My mom would tell me to take out the trash, and I'd be, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that. And then it'd be 10 o'clock at night, and she'd open the pantry, and there the trash would be, oh, I forgot, I forgot. I told you to take that trash out, so now I get the trash out, and our trash can was at the back of the yard. We had a little shed and it was at the back of the yard. I turned the floodlight on, but as I got closer and closer to the shed, I knew that there was something behind it. There was someone back there who was going to get me. <laughs> I, I just knew it. It just seemed like every time, and, I, and I'd think to myself, why did I procrastinate again? How sweet it would have been for my mom to just open it up and say, wow, the trash is gone. What a good boy Rodney is. Here's a bowl of ice cream. Oh, listen, guys. How sweet it would be. And I know I've, I've taken too much time. How sweet it would be if God didn't always have to explain every little thing to us. Do we know what God's will is? He's revealed it to us in his word. I mean, there are some, some things that we maybe not, don't know exactly where he wants us to go here or do that or do this. But so much of God's will has already been explained to us. He's told us in his word what he wants us to do, what he wants us to be about. And so how beautiful it is when God's people, when God's servants just do what he says before he even has to tell us. That's the kind of servant I want to be. And I know, and I trust, that's the same kind of servant you want to be. All things are ready. Come to the feast. Come for the table now is spread. Ye famishing, ye weary come, and thou shalt be richly fed. Are you ready to belly up to the feast that God has in store for you?